All right, good evening, everyone. Good to see you all here. Glad you could be here for our first night of Unlocking Prophecy. And I'm so glad that you could take time out of your busy schedule to be here. We're going to be on an exciting journey to study God's Word. Amen? Amen. It's going to be exciting. God's Word has so many precious messages for us. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to study it together uh, as believers. So I'm so glad that you're here joining us for our first night. As you came tonight, um, like Mark said, you should have received a copy of the seminar schedule. That should be in your little um, notebook there. And uh, also a little section where you can write down notes. If you hear anything that, or you know, Bible text and stuff, you want to go and write those down, you're more than welcome to. And uh, tonight, and throughout our series, we're going to be looking at some of the most exciting prophecies of the Bible. And uh, I'm so excited to be able to dig into God's Word. And I know that you're all busy people, and you have busy lives and busy schedules, so I'm going to make a commitment to you. I'm going to try and be done every night by 8.45 at the latest. And uh, sometimes we'll try and even see if we can get done before that, maybe 8.30 would be a good goal. So um, I'm excited about our first message tonight. It's entitled, The Key to Ma- the Master Key to Bible Prophecy. And before we get into God's Word, I invite you to bow your heads with me for another word of prayer. Father in Heaven, Lord, I want to thank you so much for bringing us all here tonight, Lord, for our first night of Unlocking Prophecy. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here as we open your Word. We pray that you would speak to us and that we would be drawn closer to you, Lord, and that we would sense the nearness of the times in which we live, Lord, how we're living so so close to your second coming, Lord. We ask and pray for your blessing to be upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He was born in New York City, and he was brilliant. At the age of 32, he began what would soon become a very successful investment securities in, um, investment securities firm on Wall Street. Now, the investment security industry is one in which large amounts of trust are needed. In order to deposit your money in the bank, you need to be able to trust your bank, right? And trust that the money will be there when you need it. And when you get into investment securities, you are not dealing with small change. You're dealing with very large sums of money. People in that business um, need to be trustworthy, right? <laughs> so typically when you invest money in the bank, the bank takes that money and they reinvest it. They pay you from the return on the investment, and that's legal, and that's how things work. Now, unfortunately, with this individual's wealth management business, it was not all that it appeared to be. Late in the year 2008, it all came crashing down. Bernie Madoff had been operating a Ponzi scheme. In a Ponzi scheme, I get money from you, and I promise you a return back. But then I get money from your neighbor, and I use that money to give you a return. So it's like I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul. And it can't go on indefinitely. And before long, it will collapse. And that's exactly what happened with Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. And there was $18 billion involved. How much is $18 billion? That's a kind of a number that's hard for us to grasp. Well, imagine here, uh, $18 billion is like if you were to spend $100 a second all day, every day, for the next five and a half years, that's how much $18 billion is. It's a lot of money, isn't it? You would end up spending as much as was lost in this Ponzi scheme. It was an absolute tragedy, friends. Many people trusted this man with their hard-earned money. Sometimes with everything that they had. 
Sadly, that trust was misplaced. And in many cases, people not only lost their fortune, but some people even lost their lives. We need to be careful about who we trust, don't we? In the past, it seems that people trusted others more readily. There was a time not so long ago when people could leave their doors unlocked at home, even their car, uh, car doors. Is the audio working? Okay. There was a time not long ago where people could leave their doors unlocked and even their windows open and they wouldn't have to worry about it. But nowadays, people make sure that everything is locked up and the security cameras are on. So people trusted Bernie Madoff, believing that if they gave him a whole lot of money, he would give them a whole lot more in return. Now, some people made out quite well with this Ponzi scheme, but others experienced the truth of the age-old saying, if something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. So who can you trust? Can you trust God? It's a fair question to ask, isn't it? If you were raised reading the Bible and going to church, and you call yourself a Christian, then you would probably say, I feel like I can trust God. I feel like I can trust the Bible. But let's stop to consider, the, let's go ahead and just use this pulpit mic. We can just use this one here. Let's just um, stop and consider that the Bible makes some pretty big claims. Let's look at a few of them. The Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back. It claims that there's a real heaven, and it also claims that there's a God who spoke the world into existence. That's a big claim, isn't it, friends? In an age of evolution, it also says that long ago, there was a worldwide flood that destroyed the entire world. The Bible also says that there was a resurrection that took place and that a man named Jesus died on a cross for you and for me, and he was raised three days later. The Bible also tells us that we'll experience peace when we choose to trust in God. It promises the forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who have repented of their sins. These are pretty big claims, aren't they? And as we look at the Bible tonight, friends, we, want, we recognize that it says these incredible things. And if those things are true, then they have a powerful impact on us and the world around us. So what is it that makes the Bible true? How can we say, I'm confident that this book is true? Well, let's go to the Bible tonight, friends, and we're going to see what God says in his word. So um, Isaiah 48, verses 9 and 10. Sometimes we may go to some of the text a little bit quick, but uh, we'll have all the verses on the screen. They'll also be in your study guide if you can't get there. But you're more than welcome to open up your Bibles and, and try and find it there. But Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God says, the Bible says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I shall do all my pleasure. So friends, God sticks his neck out there, and he puts himself on the line, and he says, I am God, and to prove it, I'll tell you things that are going to happen before they happen. Friends, do you know anyone alive that can tell the future? Well, under certain circumstances, maybe a few of us could, could maybe predict a few things with some accuracy. For instance, if you put a plate of cookies down in a room, coffee table in a living room, and you sent a bunch of children into that room, I can tell you with pretty 
uh, certainty that those cookies aren't going to last there for very long. But besides that, we don't do too good at uh, telling the future, do we? Even the weather forecasters mess up often enough. They can be right uh, half the time and wrong the other half, and everybody's okay with that, <laughs> even with our sophisticated technology these days. So the question is, so can anyone really predict the future? God puts himself on the line, and he says, I can. And in the Bible, friends, God gives us something verifiable. He gives us something that we can compare with history. He gives us something that we can measure to know whether God is right or wrong. So tonight, as we begin our Unlocking Prophecy series, we're going to look at a foundational prophecy of the Bible. And it's really an introductory presentation, and, and maybe you, you might be familiar with it already. And if so, that's a good thing. If it's new to you, pay close attention. Because when you really dig into the Bible, you'll find that what we look at tonight forms the the foundation for almost all of the end-time prophecies in the Bible. That would include large portions of the book of Daniel and Revelation, which are prophetic books in the Bible. And uh, these books all rest upon what we've looked on, upon tonight. You could describe what we're looking at tonight as the master key to Bible prophecy. So let's go to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, chapter 2. We're going to spend a lot of time there, so if you'd like to open it up, you're more than welcome to. And we'll have the verses on the screen as well. So the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And uh, as, as we go there, keep in mind what we're doing. We're seeing if God can be trusted. We want to see if we can validate what God has said. If what God has said is true, then we'll see that tonight. If it isn't, we'll see that instead. So beginning in Daniel, chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream." Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic and said, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give you the interpretation. So friends, this is one of history's most famous cases of amnesia. <laughs> the, king, the king dreamed something, but he could not remember that dream. Has that ever happened to you? You've had a crazy dream, and you're trying to remember it. You want to tell someone about it, but you just can't remember any of the details? Well, more often than not, if we have some sort of strange dream like that, it might be because we've eaten too much pizza the night before, right? <laughs> um, but this wasn't a pizza dream, friends. This was a God dream. This was a, a dream that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason it's significant is that the ancient kings believed that the gods spoke to them through dreams. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar believed was happening to him. He believed that the gods were speaking to him. And he was right, friends. He was right in the fact that the God of heaven was speaking to him. So he called his wise men together to have them explain what this was all about. After all, that's what his wise men were there for, right? So let's look at what the Bible says in Daniel 2, verses 5 and 6. It says, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation... 
You shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, that's a tough situation to be in, isn't it? Tell him what he dreams and the meaning or die. And Nebuchadnezzar wasn't kidding, friends. He meant what he said. Now, a more typical response would have been, here's my dream. Now, can you tell me what my dream meant? That's a little bit more reasonable, right? And in a situation like that, the wise men could have just made something up. But in this case, he said, I can't remember the dream. So the wise men were stuck. Now, friends, there are some people out there that claim to be able to read the future. There are crystal ball gazers, there are palm readers and psychics. You can call up the psychics, and for $1.99 a minute, they'll tell you what your lucky numbers are, right? <laughs> it's totally ridiculous, because that's definitely not how God operates. Look at what the Bible says here in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. The Bible says, it's a very familiar verse to you, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Now, even if this verse said he might direct your paths, that would be pretty good still, right? But with God, it is much better than that, friends. You can trust him. You can trust God. You can lean upon God. You can, but, but the thing is, is that you have to be all in. And the problem is, is that a lot of, with a lot of people, they're not all in. They're not fully trusting the Lord. They're half in, or they're a little bit in, or not in at all. But when you're all in, and when you acknowledge God in all your ways, God will direct your path. Do you believe that? Amen. That's his promise for you. You can take that promise to the bank, friends. God's word is reliable. You don't need a psychic. You don't need a fortune teller. You don't need a palm reader. You can go directly to the God of heaven. You, and you can know that he's with you wherever you go. So continuing on our story back in Daniel chapter 2, the so-called wise men, they come to King Nebuchadnezzar and they say this. They say, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. So here they are. They're trying their best to get Nebuchadnezzar to give them the dream. <laughs> that, that way they would have something to work with, right? But the king read right through this, and he said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until, until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was very angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, this is where things get difficult for Daniel. Evidently, Daniel was not there with that group of wise men that Nebuchadnezzar had called. 
You see, Daniel and his three friends, his three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were considered to be part of the king's circle of wise men. Now, actually, their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And shortly before this, Nebuchadnezzar had, had sent his army and attacked Jerusalem. And although they killed many people there in Jerusalem, they took many people captive. They took some of the promising, most uh, young and most promising individuals back with them to Babylon. And among them were Daniel and his three friends. And when they got to Babylon, God helped them to find favor with the king. You read all about that in Daniel chapter 1. That can be part of your homework assignment tonight. Uh, they did such a good job representing Daniel, sorry, representing God, and showing their moral and intellectual worth that the king employed them in his circle of wise men. He trusted them. So when the king said, destroy all the wise men, that included Daniel and his three friends. So what did Daniel and his friends do? Well, the Bible tells us, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they, might, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. In other words, friends, they went home to pray. And friends, if you were to leave tonight and forget almost everything that I'm, that I'm going to say, remember this one thing. Remember to pray. Remember to pray. Talk to God. Anybody can do it, friends. Even if you don't speak, you can pray with your thoughts. You can pray in your mind as you're driving down the road. God doesn't ask you to come before him with the Gettysburg Address. He doesn't uh, expect you to have an I have a dream speech prayer. You don't have to be in order to talk to God. You can just talk to God like you talk to a friend. Peter was sinking one day, and he cried out to Jesus, and he prayed the, one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. He said, Lord, save me. A three-word prayer that God answered. Jesus heard Peter's prayer and answered it, and you know what, friends? God hears your prayers, and he wants to answer your prayers too. Amen? So Daniel and his friends prayed to the God of heaven, and what did God do? Daniel chapter 2, verse 19 tells us, it says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Notice that Daniel didn't make up an interpretation. He didn't just think of something up himself and, and, and make something up and tell it to the king. He, God revealed it to him. Then Daniel's brought before the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler on the planet. And he starts to explain his dream to him. He said, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellence, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like the chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Imagine King Nebuchadnezzar hearing this. 
This is amazing. I can imagine the king scooting up in his chair, leaning forward. I can imagine his jaw dropping as he hears Daniel tell him exactly what he dreamed in in the, the night before. And then in the next eight verses, friends, God reveals to Nebuchadnezzar and to us what is going to take place over the next 2,500 years of history and beyond. Now remember, friends, God is putting himself on the line here. If what God says is not true, I would encourage you to walk away from the Bible. But friends, if it's a document that can be trusted, then you owe it to yourself to study the prophecies that that are in God's word. Amen? The fact is, friends, is that this prophecy of Daniel 2 provides the basis for almost all of the last day prophecies in the book of Daniel and Revelation. So if Daniel 2 isn't reliable, then all those other prophecies collapse like a house of cards. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 2 and look at verse 37 and 38. Daniel says, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. I can imagine a smile of satisfaction coming across the king's face at that point as he hears that he is the, king of, uh, the, the head of gold. You see, friends, Nebuchadnezzar was the, like the Babylonian Empire personified. Everyone knew that the military conquests and all the ec- architectural splendor of Babylon were in a large measure due to his skill and leadership. So what did the head of gold mean? Well, it represented the empire of Babylon, which ruled from the year 605 to 539 BC. Interestingly enough, friends, it was also a nation known for having an abundance of gold. Babylon was a powerful kingdom in the ancient world, and as a matter of fact, there was an uh, an ancient cuneiform tablet that was found that contains a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what it says. It says, the whole earth was prostrate at Babylon's feet. Babylon, the city which is the delight of my eyes, which I have glorified, may it last forever. That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought. In fact, no one thought that Babylon would ever be destroyed. But notice what the Bible says. It says in Daniel 2.39, it says, But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. In other words, Daniel was telling Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would not last forever. Babylon would be conquered by the next power, represented by the chest and arms of silver. And what's happening here, friends, is that the Bible is interpreting itself. We're not making this stuff up. This is what God's word is telling us. So you don't have to guess what the head of gold represents. You don't have to guess what the, the chest and arms of silver represent. The Bible tells us. The Bible explains itself what it's talking about. So when you're studying prophecy, you want to look for those verses that explain what the important symbols of prophecy mean. A few chapters later, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 38, the Bible names the next kingdom that would conquer Babylon. Daniel 5, 38 says this. Daniel is telling Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, this. He says, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That night that Daniel told this to King Belshazzar, Medo-Persia conquered Babylon. 
Thus, the chest and arms of silver shown in the dream represented the kingdom of Medo-Persia, which ruled from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. And friends, we see that the Bible predicted it, and history has verified it. But even Medo-Persia would not last forever. Daniel 2.39 goes on to say, Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So we see that a third kingdom would come to the scene. And a few chapters later in Daniel 8.21, Daniel has another parallel vision to Daniel chapter 2. And uh, the angel Gabriel names the next kingdom after Medo-Persia. It says this in Daniel 8.21, And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Now, who is the first king? king of Greece, who overthrew Medo-Persia and the rest of the then-known world. Alexander the Great, that's right. Through his leadership, Greece dominated the world very rapidly, but he died young. He died at the age of 33 in Babylon, of all places. And after his death, his empire was weakened, and it eventually split into several parts, until finally on June 22, 168 BC at the Battle of Pydna perished the empire of Alexander the Great 144 years after his death. That was written by Theodore Mumpson in his book, The History of Rome. So history is verifying what the Bible has said. Amen? So far we find three kingdoms ruling in succession. Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. But it doesn't end there, friends. There's a fourth kingdom that comes on the scene. Daniel chapter 2, verse 40 tells us, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Greece was conquered by the armies of Rome, as depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's legs of iron. Pagan Rome came into power around 168 BC and ruled all the way to AD 476. And historians even refer to Rome as the Iron Kingdom. The great English historian Edward Gibbon, though not a Christian himself or a Bible believer, wrote in his book these words. He wrote this in The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He said, The arms of the Republic, that is, the Roman Republic, was sometimes vanquished in battle, but always victorious in war. Advanced with rapid steps to the Euphrates, the Danube, the Rhine, and the ocean, the images of gold, silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by what? The Iron Monarchy of Rome. Now, Edward Gibbon knew that Rome was a republic, but notice how he seems to correlate the metals as representing nations. Now, keep something in mind here, friends. The prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 was all predicted hundreds of years before it ever happened. God actually predicted four kingdoms, but what would happen to this fourth kingdom of Rome? Well, Daniel chapter 2, verse 41 tells us, it says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. 
So God said plainly here that Rome wouldn't be conquered, but that it instead would be divided. So what happened to Rome? Well, rather than another great kingdom coming and conquering Rome, Rome fell apart through luxury, through political corruption and moral decay. Rome lost its stability and its power. It became an easy prey for the barbarian tribes that began to challenge the Roman Empire. This happened from between A.D. 351 until the eventual fall of the Roman Empire in A.D. 476. These invasions divided the empire and formed the foundation for the nations that we now call Europe. Daniel chapter 2, verse 42 and 43 say this, And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seeds of men, but they will not do what? They will not adhere. The, uh, the King James says they will not cleave. Uh, the English Standard Version of the Bible says they will not hold together to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. The Bible tells us that people would try to reunite divided Europe, but that they would fail. Down through the ages and through history, many people have tried and they've failed. If you were to travel to Paris, you would see evidence that Napoleon was on a quest to become the emperor of, the, of a revived Roman Empire. But it didn't work, friends. Kaiser Wilhelm and Adolf Hitler were trying to do the same thing. They were on a quest to reunite Europe. There was even a time when Queen Victoria was known as the grandmother of Europe. And King Christian IX of Denmark was known as the father-in-law of Europe. There was so much intermarriage going on, trying to, uh, in an attempt to re, uh, reunify the empire, that people saw it for what it was. But did they succeed? No, they did not, friends, because they couldn't. And now today, people are trying to reunite Europe through diplomatic means, right? But it hasn't happened. And with the Brexit happening just recently, it looks like even their diplomatic efforts are failing. And that's because the Bible says they will not adhere. They will not cleave. They will not hold together to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. During World War II, Franz Hazel was a soldier in the German army, and he was sent to the front lines. He was placed there because he was a conscientious objector. He didn't want to fight in the war. He didn't, he didn't believe in the cause, but was prepared to serve his country. So they thought they could get rid of him quickly by sending him to the front lines. And during that experience, he received a request from his commanding officer that he come to his makeshift office, and he was asked a very pointed question. He said, do you think Germany is going to win this war? You see, Hazel, they asked Hazel this because he had been studying the Bible with some of his fellow soldiers. And uh, his commanding officer had learned that Hazel was telling them that Germany was not going to win the war because of Bible prophecy. And he wanted to know. So Hazel paused for a moment. He didn't know exactly how to respond to his commanding officer because he could have ended up getting court-martialed or possibly even killed if he, if he answered in a way that the officer didn't like. And so he said, a, he said a short, silent prayer. And for a moment, and then he had, 
he suddenly had an idea. He asked his commanding officer a question. He said, is this an official question or an unofficial question? And uh, his commanding officer responded by taking off his hat and saying, well, I'll let you answer it unofficially. You see, they had a unwritten code in that officer's group that you could do that. So Hazel took off his hat and pulled a small Bible out of his shirt pocket. And he opened it up to Daniel chapter 2, the prophecy that we've been looking at in our study tonight. And he started going through the prophecy one by one, each of the kingdoms. He also had a small piece of paper that he took out of his pocket. And it contained a picture of the, the image in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Hazel went through the whole prophecy with his commanding officer. And when he was finished with the prophecy and got down to the feet of clay and iron that did not cleave to one another, he said, this is Europe. This is the time in which we live. And just as iron and clay do not cleave to one another, you can be sure that Hitler is not going to win this war. There will not be a third right that will last for a thousand years like Hitler is promising. There was a long pause in that office. And his commanding officer asked him for his Bible. And he requested that he come back the next morning, and he dismissed him. Hazel went to sleep that night, and the next morning at 9 a.m., he was in the office of his commanding officer. And there, and, and there with him were two other high-ranking officials that had joined him. And Hazel didn't recognize these individuals. And at that moment, the officer took off his hat. And he told everyone else to do the same. This was going to be an unofficial conversation. And he said that nothing that was said there would ever be repeated outside of that room. He handed Hazel back the Bible, his Bible. And he said, I want you to tell me everything that you told me yesterday with these men here. And don't leave a single detail out. Hazel opened up his Bible to the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2, and he went through the entire prophecy with those officers. And when he got down to the feet of iron mixed with clay, he said, Hitler will not win this war. Hitler's third right will not last a thousand years. And when he was finished, Hazel was dismissed. And as he was heading out the door, his commanding officer said, Oh, by the way, I should introduce you to the two men that were here with me. He introduced one, the officer that was on his right and said, this officer was a history, history professor at a very prestigious university before he became an officer in the German army. He has confirmed all the dates and all the kingdoms that you described in your study. This other gentleman was a, was a high school history teacher, and he's also confirmed the sequence of events that you have mentioned. I thank you, Franz Hazel. You are free to go. And Hazel left that day rejoicing because he was able to share God's word with these very influential men. He knew that God was faithful. And six months later, the war ended. The war ended, and now he had, they had to get from the heart of Russia all the way back to Germany, a journey of over a thousand miles. And unbeknownst to Hazel, his commanding officer had begun six months earlier to save and ration every bit of gasoline that they could. And that was because he was convinced in that Bible study that Germany was not going to win the war and that they needed enough fuel to be able to make it home. 
and by God's grace, Brent Coswell was one of the first ministers back on duty, serving the Lord in the country of Germany after the war. Amen? We want to go back now to that same prophecy one more time. The same prophecy that Hazel shared with his commanding officers. God said that four kingdoms would rise and that the fourth would be divided. God predicted it, friends, and that's exactly what happened. Therefore, the Bible has demonstrated tonight that it is a trustworthy document. Can you say amen to that? The Bible is trustworthy. Therefore, we should be able to trust that the God of the God of the Bible is also a trustworthy is also trustworthy. God said, "Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me." Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, "My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure." You know, my friends, you can have hope tonight in a world that is spinning out of control. The Bible reveals that there is a God who holds the future in his hands. God is not distant or unapproachable. God is present. God is with us, friends. Prophecy reveals where this world is headed. God saw it and he told us ahead of time. The prophecies of the Bible are reliable and they're accurate. Amen? Even though they were given millennia ago, they're still accurate. So what happens after Rome was divided? Well, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 tells us, it says, And in these days, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Babylon came and went, friends. Medo-Persia came and went. Greece and Rome, they're gone. And one day soon, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Can someone say, praise the Lord? The Bible says, it continues, it says, And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume how many kingdoms? All these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Notice, friends, it's not a kingdom that is going to coexist with all these earlier kingdoms. It's going to consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. It continues, it says, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So friends, can God be trusted? Yes, he can. Can God's word be trusted? Absolutely. We see that very clearly from this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. So whatever you're going through tonight, God has not forgotten you, friends. He's not unaware of what's going on in your life. He knows you, and he has a plan for each and every one of you. God is a good God, a God that can be trusted, a God that can be relied upon. He's a God who comes through on his promises. Amen? And if all these prophecies are true, then God's grace is true. God's forgiveness is true. God's love is true. In fact, you can experience each of these things in your, in your life tonight, friends. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. Soon that rock will come and it will strike the image. Soon Jesus will return. Soon Christ's kingdom will be established. And the truth of it all, friends, is that God wants you 
each and every one of you, to be a part of that kingdom. He died for you so that you can live forever with him. You can have hope tonight because his promises are sure. They're 100% true, friends. And his promises are for you. How many of you tonight want to be a part of Christ's new heavenly kingdom when he comes? Amen. Let's pray together that God will help us to be ready for that great day when Jesus comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is trustworthy, it's reliable, and it's true. Father, we, we thank you so much that you've revealed it to Daniel, that you revealed this dream to Daniel, and that you preserved your word for us today. Lord, we long for your coming. Lord, this world is so messed up. There's so many bad things happening. Lord, it makes us long to be with you, long to be in that kingdom that you will set up when you come. And Lord, we pray that you would be with each person here, Lord. Come into our hearts, come into our lives. Help us, Lord, to live for you each day. And Father, we pray that you would continue to bless us, Lord, as we study your word. Lord, may we, may we go home, may we study these things out for ourselves and make sure that these things are true, Lord. We thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your promises, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this, this message. And help us, Lord, to have more confidence in your word and in your promises, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.